everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about topics which change from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis. When the Japanese Navy attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, it brought the United States, which up until that point had been bitterly divided about whether to become involved in World War II, right into the heart of the conflict. Among the millions of Americans who mobilised as part of the war effort were members of the entertainment industry, and over the next four years, thousands of Hollywood's brightest stars and most talented artists did what they could for their country. In his 2014 book, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War, journalist Mark Harris followed five of those volunteers, the legendary directors Frank Capra, John Ford, John Huston, George Stevens and William Wyler, all of whom offered their services to the War Department as documentarians and propagandists. The films they made as part of that assignment took them to every theatre of the conflict, profoundly altered their careers and lives, and fundamentally shaped how generations of filmmakers and audiences viewed the Second World War. Five Came Back has now been made into a three-part documentary from Netflix, adapted by Mark Harris and and directed by Laurent Buzero, and debuted on the streaming service last Friday. Joining me this week to discuss the series is the co-host of the Masters of Carpentry podcast, and whose other work can be found at noelct.blogspot.com. It's Noel Thingball. Hi Noel, how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing fine. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm excited because uh, I really, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this topic. But also, you're the first American that we've ever had on the show. Really? Yeah. After five years and hundred something episodes, we finally found an American. Wow. And it's also a pleasure to finally be talking to you because I think you and I have been like following each other for at least five years, six years. Yeah, six, maybe six or seven years. Yeah. So when did I it's... write for Hope Lies? It was a while ago. Yeah, around the same time I did. So 2010, 2011, I think I wrote, was the last time I wrote for, for Hope Lies. Somewhere around there, yeah. And I kind of fell into that whole community of people. Yeah, including uh, Adam, who was one of the co-hosts of this show in the kind of very distant past, which I always <laughs> think is is strange. Because it was it, for so long, it became just me and Matt talking. That right. it's, it's odd to think that at one time there was a third host and that's why um, <laughs> the early days it was completely unmanageable to record on a regular schedule because it was really hard to get three people to sit down in mm. the same room. Well, and I will say it's a pleasure to finally be on because your blog uh, film reviews are still some of my favorites to read every time you're oh, going out. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get back to that in the uh, in the near future, but lots of lots of things going on at the mm. moment, which is is good professionally, but not great for the kind of the writing movies thing um i i know what that's like <laughs> uh but yeah so um we're going to be talking this week about the documentary series five came back the director's name i probably butchered in that i tried to find a pronunciation online but i couldn't i couldn't it find just, it i think it's lauren Bozzeri. yeah uh who i didn't realize until i looked him up is maybe the most prolific maker of behind the scenes documentaries in the world oh yeah yeah He's... and i i'm very familiar with him from like his jaws and his other spielberg and brian de palma movie worked for like a decade back yeah so uh so uh it should come as no surprise that it's an incredibly well-assembled documentary he has he's put in more than his ten thousand hours mm-hmm. uh when it comes to putting together documentaries but uh like i said it's about those five filmmakers who are all legends you know uh both at the time that the film was made they were all pretty successful houston was probably the least successful but he still had been nominated for like three or four oscars right so he so these were five filmmakers who had all done kind of incredible work and it would go on to do uh, incredible work. I guess, uh, to begin with, what is, uh, what's, what's your kind of familiarity with their work going into the, into the series? Uh, it it kind of mixed. And I mean, let me just kind of look through them one at a time. I know uh, William Wyler, I've seen Roman Holiday, Ben-Hur, How to Steal mm-hmm. a Million, Funny Girl. So kind of more his later era of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Ford is... He's one of those guys, I think I mentioned before the show, I, I own a lot of his works. I meant to sit down and watch through it all as a nice follow-up to Kurosawa, because I know Kurosawa was hugely influenced by him. Mm. But I've only seen two of them so far. And in fact, one of them was just me guesting on someone else's podcast last month to wow. show me uh, uh, The Quiet Man for the first time. Mm. And then the only other, other one I've seen is Donovan's Reef, one of his last. And wow, so not, not two of the most... Uh, well, I guess the, the Quiet Man's fairly high profile, right. but... But not, not Donovan's Reef. Yeah, Donovan's Reef, which was made entirely so him and John Wayne could get a studio paid vacation to Hawaii for a month. Wow. So they were the, <laughs> the original Adam Sandler. Right. And then uh, John Houston, uh, African Queen, 
Maltese Falcon, which I believe was his first movie. Mm-hmm. The Man Who Would Be King. I've oddly still never seen Annie. I don't think I have. It seems like something I probably would have seen as a kid, but I'm pretty sure that I haven't seen that. I think um, I haven't seen a lot of Latter Day Houston, but I, I keep meaning to because right. his last decade is very. Is there's an odd mix of really high profile kind of studio comedies and things, but also stuff right. like The Dead, which is an incredibly <laughs> kind of dark look at at the uh, the end of life, uh, which he was making as he was in an iron lung, essentially. Right. <laughs> And then, of course, I've also seen the 1970s Rankin and Bass Lord of the Rings animated films where he voiced Gandalf. Yes, yeah, and and uh, I've seen, uh, I've seen, I've seen quite a lot of, of John Huston stuff. But I, I always love hearing his voice, <laughs> and there's a there's a lot of that in the documentary, which is which is fun. Right, uh, George Stevens. I've seen two of his his most prominent post war works: Giant and Diary of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. Oddly, still never seen Shane. Yeah, which is uh, really in the zeitgeist at the moment, thanks to Logan, which mm. uses it quite a fair bit. Yes, it does. Yeah. Frank Capra, I've, again, I've only seen a couple. Like, I've seen Arsenic and Old Lace and It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. I, I've never seen uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or, or Meet John Doe or, oh, It Happened One Night, I've seen as well. Yeah, I I had, um, I think George Stevens is the one I have the least kind of grounding in. Um, of his pre-war comedies and kind of action-adventure movies, mm-hmm. I've only seen Gunga Din and Woman of the Year, which are both great in, in very different ways. And then of his later work, when he became uh, a lot more serious and less prolific, uh, I've only seen Giant, Shane, and A Place in the Sun. Right. Um, and, and Giant count as, counts as three movies, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean... <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot in that. There's a lot going on. Um, I've seen most of John Huston's work, um, apart from the last decade where there's some gaps. I've seen. I've seen. I think probably about twenty or thirty of his movies, including some which I forget he made because he was he was very prolific. Capra. I've seen most of the big ones. I've seen Lost Horizon. You can't take it with you. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Meet John Doe. Arsenic and Old Lace. <laughs> so I've seen, I've seen. It's a Wonderful Life. Obviously, nothing right. post. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life because I think that that stuff when he was on the kind of the downward slope of his career is harder to see. Right. Um, I've seen most. Uh, I've, I haven't seen most of John Ford's work because he's obviously made hundreds of movies. <laughs> but I've seen. I've seen probably about twenty of them. Which I is, think it's like sixty-two or something like that. <laughs> it's quite yeah. A bit. Yeah, uh, well, he did a lot of shorts and uh, like oh, the yeah, early yeah, silent yeah. stuff, which I think His is early harder. silent stuff. A lot of that's lost. So mm, yeah, so so at least I'm on, in the same boat with everyone there. And then um, William Wilder, I've seen a, f- a fair bit of his stuff, mainly thanks to his his collaborations with uh, Betty Davis. So things mm-hmm. like The Little Foxes, uh, uh, Jezebel, but also uh, stuff like Ben Hur, which again is a movie that's about four movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Funny Girl. Yeah. So I've seen. So I I've got a reasonably good good grounding in in some of their works but right. prior to uh reading the book um three years ago uh i i was largely unaware of their wartime service you know you would see mm-hmm. listed on imdb where it would say suddenly there's this long line of documentaries that they all made but it never really right. uh, occurred to me what that entailed so reading the the book was quite eye-opening in that regard but uh in some ways that the series is is more so because as great a writer as mark harris is and as good as far as he can get you in describing what some of those movies are what some of those documentaries entail seeing them uh in context in the documentary has a much more for me it had a really powerful um emotional impact right right and uh i i have not read the book but i i i'm guessing my experience watching this documentary the first time over this weekend very similar experience where I've heard about these eras, especially as I was researching for, and I know John Sturgis also had that period there. I mm. think he actually completed a couple of William Wyler's uh, movies that he, when he had to leave over, over his injuries. Mm-hmm. I, it's like, I always knew that they were there, but I've never actually sat down and watched any of them until preparing for this show. So it, it is kind of neat to finally have that additional context and actually see some life brought into it. Yeah. And it's also, fascinating because because i think i probably have seen bits of those movies in other documentaries because Mm. when you see like george stevens and and john ford's footage of the d-day landings that's the stuff that has been used constantly in every documentary about the war whenever Mm. they get to d-day they're using some of their footage all the holocaust Um, footage yeah yeah Yeah. that stuff's very is is 
um, very frequently used because obviously it's, it was very widely disseminated at the time. And I think mm-hmm. what really comes across in the documentary is how much um, the popular memory of of World War Two is shaped by the work that those those directors were doing for the War Department in going to the front the front line to record what was going on mm-hmm. uh, and even though they were trying to in some cases put a a more positive spin on what was happening they were still capturing the things that were actually happening except in instances where they were recreating it after the fact but but, yeah (laughs) as it was the case with with john houston a few of them but for the most part they are they are capturing real life events uh and, and they're doing it in a way that is kind of beautifully framed and and is because of the way they're assembling documentaries is kind of paced like a like a real movie Right. And one, one thing that the documentary doesn't get into is it's interesting. It would be interesting to explore how the technology of the time, you know, mm. the more handheld quality of cameras at the time allowed them to to get that more wide access of footage, which like you couldn't have in, like, say, World War One. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, watching a, a, an interview with Mark Harris uh, prior to prior to this, where he did say that one of the things that was really interesting about the the, the, the war, World War Two in general, was it was the first major conflict um, that at least America was involved in where they had sound recording out there to capture everything that was going on whereas mm-hmm. in World War One, obviously that wasn't the case they didn't have sound they just had images and then and people were used to the idea of seeing things with sound because sound cinema was was established in Hollywood mm-hmm. in, in regular movies but also through newsreels people expected the images to have sound at that point right and even there, even then, a lot of this is still silent footage that they're like doing fully work on mm. and, and redubbing over audio. And like, I love that little revelation of William Wyler brought that entire air company back with him to record all their radio jargon. In the mm. Yeah, yeah, which is which is incredible. And and I love that you know, like like you say, there's not a huge amount of that in terms of the discussion of the technology. There's a little mm. bit when they're talking about the filming of of Thunderbolt, which was the the movie that William Wyler made, which inadvertently led to him losing his hearing. Where he's talking about strapping uh, handheld, trying to find the right places on a single person craft uh, aircraft to put the cameras to get the best views and things like that. But for the most part, it is more on the the personal journeys of the five the five uh, five directors. Right. Right. Uh, and, and those journeys are related through five contemporary directors, which I thought was a an interesting mm. way to go. You have you have Meryl Streep provides the vo- voiceover for the for the show, just kind of to carry things on when you need to discuss events and to put things into a broader context. But the film uh, consists of five interviews with uh, directors like Guillermo del Toro, who who I mean they they there's a little bit of crossover here and there, but for the most part these directors all talk about one director. So Del Toro talks about Frank Capra, Paul Greengrass talks about John Ford, Steven Spielberg talks about William Wyler, uh, Francis Ford Coppola talks about John Houston, and Lawrence Kasdan talks about George Stevens. Uh, and I found when I when I initially heard that that was the way they were doing it, I thought that was was a strange choice, but uh, I found it worked surprisingly well in context. Right. And I, I like that because while it does kind of give a, a slightly more uh, prearranged and scripted quality to the documentary, mm-hmm. I, I I like that choice because it kind of like lets each director kind of be like a champion for each or kind of like an own individualized narrator for mm. each each of the individual directors. So you have the context where Spielberg's talking. That means we're, we're li- listening to, to Weiler. You know, Del Toro's mm. talking. That means we're, we're learning about Capra. It, it was kind of nice how they not so much were the voice of those directors but kind of like each one was like a representative yeah i've, I've been thinking of them as advocates for them in a yes. sense but but yes representing them is 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 right and there is kind of a fun extra game i guess to try and figure out why exactly each director wanted to talk about which filmmaker because um because they all got to choose basically who they wanted right. to focus on and some of them you think okay straight away Guillermo del Toro and Frank Capra make sense because Frank yeah. Capra is a director was an immigrant as well uh, as when del Toro talks about Frank Capra's view of America as a place of kind of wonder and hope and promise mm-hmm. you can tell that 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 touches something in his soul really and that that really shines through Paul Greengrass there's one where it's one of those ones where it takes a few episodes to get there but then he starts talking about the battle of Midway and how Ford was in the middle of a conflict and they left in basically all of the mistakes of of the the shutters coming loose and the images blurring and becoming distressed and thus was a shaky cam director born 
Yeah, exactly. So you can really think, okay, yeah, that makes sense because of his his particular aesthetic, uh, and uh, I, I think that's kind of an extra extra bit of fun, particularly for cinephiles where they're mm-hmm. watching it and they're thinking, okay, what about each director kind of draws these these creators in? Right, and then like Spielberg and Weiler with the the powerful emotion and mm. the focus on actors and and also the kind of very painterly imagery, especially as he gets into like Ben Hur and. How it's like he can't hear anymore, so then he just starts painting with color, and it's like, so do mm. you, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, or at least also... he did until uh, what's his name took over as photographer and made everything monitor. Oh yeah, Kaminsky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a shame. And also the the fact that uh, Weiler was the only one of the five who was Jewish, and so there is, yes. and, and obviously Spielberg's background through Schindler's List and his his work kind of with the the Shoah Foundation and things like that, you can tell that that. Uh, meant something to him the idea of a director who he clearly admires as an artist as well returning to europe and then at one point essentially going awol to visit his the town that he grew up in 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 france to try and find out if anyone survived uh and, and you know that's kind of uh, incredibly yeah there's an incredibly emotional moment in the documentary right and then of course uh coppola in houston with you know mythic masculinity and mm. and they both like wine yeah and, and i think they both are kind of swashbucklers of their own era in a certain yes. sense. Um, that that you do get that sense from the way in which someone like George Lucas talks about how much he idolised Francis Ford Coppola, even though he was only like a couple of years older than him, but how he seemed like such a, this kind of like daring world worldwise uh, kind of figure. Uh, and you can see there's a lot of that in in John Huston as well. You know, like the first story John uh, Coppola tells about John Huston is him getting into a fight with. Uh, Errol, Errol Flynn over Olivia de Havilland <laughs> and you can tell that he's kind of thinking there's he kind of talks about oh you know if I could only fight Errol Flynn over Olivia de Havilland but then there's that kind of sense that you get that there's probably a, a kinship there uh, right. between the it, two and it's like Coppola has that one Hearts of Darkness story in his life and you could probably make a Hearts of Darkness for every year of John Huston's life yeah absolutely it, yeah. it sounds like that big and that wild of a life not not quite to Sam Peckinpah levels, but still. No, yeah, he he managed to um he, he also managed to outrun his hard living for a little longer than Peckinpah did. Yeah, um, and, and I gotta say the the kind of interesting odd man out was uh, Lawrence Kasdan mm. for George Stevens. Yeah, I I think it I, he comes across in the um in the documentary as 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 a very thoughtful speak, speaker, and in the interview I saw, I saw with um with Harris, he basically said that he 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 seemed to be drawn to him because they were both uh kind of writers who went on to um mm. to direct and things like that but but I think the main connection there to me seems to be Gunga Din being a very strong influence on on Lawrence Kasdan and that's why he was drawn to George Stevens' work in general and then right. maybe he finds something more in in a guy who was very kind of unassuming it seemed just kind of a happy family man who was happy to kind of play around in different genres who ended up being thrust into just kind of the most horrifying thing that you could possibly capture as a filmmaker. Right. It it just struck me as odd though, as it's like Coppola, Spielberg, Del mm. Toro, even Greengrass and Lawrence Kasdan, who it's yeah. like his, his directorial efforts are when you, th- I mean, he's still been directing, but you really only think of a couple that he made back in the eighties. Mm. Yeah. And, and as a screenwriter, again, really only a few films that really, always leap to mind yeah yeah of course the the most important one being clash of the titans sure yeah uh yeah so it's very that he he definitely feels like an odd one out in terms of the the directors of that stature he is very uh, good in the documentary though i, I really like oh, yeah. his, his his representation of, of george stevens it just it just always kind of threw me at first it's like all these guys and lawrence cast <laughs> <laughs> just there to fill in the numbers but yeah like yeah. you say he he does come across very well as, as uh, just very knowledgeable who, yeah incredible yeah incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly um you get a sense that he's got a great empathy for what george stevens went through um, and, and he, it helps that george stevens is one of the most compelling stories of all the directors it, yeah it's on th- odd quiet ways yeah there's a there's an interesting thing in both in both the book and the series where there's this strange dramatic irony that george stevens is the guy who i think ends up coming in latest of all of them in that in terms of being deployed out into mm-hmm. the field but he's the one who ends up spending the most time in the field and the one who ends up actually going to 
into Germany and and filming the camps. Um, right. Uh, and the one who very much probably the most changed by it. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that's something as well that I think is really fascinating about the documentary which comes across a little bit in the book with Stevens because it's the most obvious change that, you know, before the war he was doing like swing time and, and uh, kind of comedies and musicals. And then afterwards he's making these very kind of dark uh, and very serious movies about the kind of, uh, about the human experience. In, uh, mm. And you can tell something about the the war really shook him up. Uh, but uh, And you see that as well with Wyler because the first movie he made after the war was the best years of their lives where he is in in a certain sense putting his own experiences as a veteran returning as a disabled veteran as well returning to the the u.s into into images right but i never quite got the connection with someone like ford who always seemed to be kind of a, a hard hard living guy anyway but then in the in the documentary when you see like scenes from the searchers of mm. Ethan standing in the doorway, unsure about how to return to uh, whether or not he's welcome in kind of a domestic life. And you kind of realize, oh, you know, that maybe resonated with him as someone who's returned from seeing all of this violence and conflict, suddenly wondering how do I fit back into the the family right. life that I've built up up until this point. I think the shared thing among them is you see a, a sudden existential crises mm. in their works. Yeah. Of like wondering what it all means. And of course, It's a Wonderful Life is entirely that. And then, yeah, with Shane, with, you know, Best Years of Our Lives, with what was what was it that Houston did right after he came back? Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Exactly. Yeah, which is is definitely one about where, where again, he's someone who comes from a hard-bitten tradition, but there's a, there's a obsessiveness and a darkness to that that isn't even in something like the Maltese Falcon, which is entirely about people following their baser instincts to kind of um, screech, screw each other over. Uh, in the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, it is, like you say, it's, it's very existential. I, I think it has a, a similar theme among a lot of their works is that they were more certain before the war and then afterwards they mm. became more questioning. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I think that is uh, comes across really powerfully in the documentary. You do get a sense of... <laughs> It does a really great job of establishing who these five men were prior to the war and what their careers were like and their their concerns and, and the kind of movies they made. And even someone like Ford, who clearly had some guilt about the fact that he didn't fight in World War One. Uh, he he had been at the start of his career and he had stayed in America and, and made movies and, and kind of tried to work through that guilt in his art. You still get the sense, and yeah, I think um uh, uh Greengrass himself even says about Ford that you know there was an optimism in his early work which is is not really there after World War Two and and the film right. does a great job of establishing that contrast. Right, and then uh, yeah, and that's where they have that interesting story where he actually started tearing into John Wayne over having not gone over to serve. Despite mm. the fact that John Wayne was too old, had physical issues, had a family, and they w- probably wouldn't have accepted him. And he probably would have done some stuff for like the USO or done something for war Which bombs. Which he did up. do, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was doing nothing. <laughs> it wasn't right. like he was he was ignoring the conflict that was going on. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting conflict of the film. Uh, right. There's lots of interesting kind of conflicts and moments that the, the, the series can't get into because even though it's three hours. Three hours is not really enough time to cover right. five stories that all take place over about half a decade. Right, um, I know I know one of the extensions of that story that, I, that I, I know from other research is Robert Montgomery, who was on that film that they, they made about about the uh, the, the, the boat, the, the military hmm. boats, actually tore into Ford over it because he was the one who actually served in the war and commanded one of those boats and, and hmm. tore into him for shaming actors for not having served. And that actually again changed Ford, and and he finally moved on from that too. Yeah, and uh, certainly there were, there are little moments that are kind of that are left out entirely, which in the right. book were ended up uh, being quite haunting. There's one because uh, because John Houston, they talk a little bit about the documentary he made, uh, "Let There Be Light" after right. the war, which was about PTSD and and is a really searching, soulful film about trying to come to grips with the the impact of what the what the soldiers had seen and, mm-hmm. and the question of trying to help them reach a point where they can return to to society as as functional human beings and there's a, there's a sense that all oh, that maybe touches on his own personal feelings about the conflict but in the book there is a there's a story where 
it talks about him walking around, I think it's either Washington or New York, possibly London, where he basically gets drunk, walks around with a gun in his pocket waiting for someone to fight him <laughs> Be- because he's so he's he's so kind of torn up over the things that he's he's witnessed you know they and, and this is true of all of the the directors they all saw people die they all um had to bear witness to terrible things being done and they were all under inter- incredible stress as a, as a result but that's one of those moments which uh, I can see why it's not in the documentary because it's a kind of a heart it's a, it's just kind of a little character sketch but it's the sort of thing which I feel like they they could have included more of if the series had been longer just to kind of establish that the, they they may have tried to work through these things in their work but they didn't quite uh, work you know some of them did carry these scars for a really long time right and, and it is interesting i'm um, speaking of let there be light and a couple of the ones that steven's made hmm. are that i i knew that there were a lot of the a lot of the drum of of the propaganda films leading up to the war and during the war but i never knew that some of these were actually ones that cover the fallout of the war and post-war and the consequences hmm. of the war you know like uh, George Stevens with all of the Holocaust discoveries and even making a film for the Nuremberg trials. Yes. You know, and then of course, let there be light about what happens when the soldiers come home and have to figure out how to reprogram themselves for modern day for, for just a normal life. Mm. Yeah. And, and that one as well is interesting because it was suppressed for yes. a very long time until the early eighties, uh, at which point it came out to, to much acclaim because it is a really, is a really powerful movie and, and um, ended up providing a lot of uh, inspiration for Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, mm. uh, right down to him recreating uh, one of the conversations that uh, Joaquin Phoenix has in The Master is almost word for word, a, a, a conversation that is in Let There Be Light about uh, the question of nostalgia and homesickness, which right. is, which is really uh interesting and really compelling that that the film was sat on for such a long period of time by the war department but even when it did come out everyone was like oh yeah this is really powerful maybe it would have helped a lot of people if it had come right. out in in 1945 and what's interesting is that message did still get out because the mm. documentary was suppressed about ptsd which wasn't called ptsd at the time but yeah. what led to it but best years of our lives came out from william wyler which explores a lot of the exact same stuff and themes and i think that's mm. probably why it also attached itself to audiences so heavily as it did yeah uh, you know it's a great and it's described in the in the, the series as a great work of american realism and, and yes. that is even though it has a relatively upbeat-ish ending you know it's not it doesn't say hey everyone's fine now but it does offer the hope that you know people are on the road to being fine um it doesn't have the bleakness of of houston's documentary which is you know it's very empathetic and very uh i think uh coppola says you know it shows the bigness of of houston's soul that he made it with all the love for these men who he was trying to help but it still is a lot to kind of take in and you could imagine it being difficult for and certainly the army felt it would be difficult for people to watch it immediately after the war when people are trying to be hopeful about the world they're, right. they're going to build and that was another interesting thing is is the kind of conflicts that you even see in the films themselves because i know both you and i have been watching some of the documentaries themselves mm. about how some of them are very much about how this is horrible stuff and it's horrible things and it's showing loss and it's showing bodies and it's mm-hmm. showing the actual casualties of war while also still like supporting the soldiers and supporting the cause. And I, I like that kind of subversion where it's not lying to people, even as it's lying, <laughs> even as it's trying to manipulate them in a certain direction. Yeah. You really see that in the battle of Midway, which is, is Ford's film, which the, mm-hmm. um, you know, Greengrass talks about the 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 quality of the action footage itself, or the battle scene itself, which is really kinetic. But it's bookended by these fairly treacly kind of scenes of the men going around just doing their job, and then it will cut back to oh, this is this person's parents back in Ohio, and you know, and the narrator is having a conversation with some unseen woman, like saying like, oh, that's Junior Connor or Junior Kenny is his name and things like that, and it's it is um. Yeah, there's this really, like you said, there's a conflict between what it's showing, which is the, the the terror and the chaos of battle, versus the hey, these are just like your neighbor's kids, you know, they're going to do their bit, which right. is a much a much sunnier spin on what's happening. Right, and then you got like William Wyler's uh, Memphis Bell, 
Mm. where again it's very much like look at these impressive machines look at the crews they get to go out and fly them and then like it's just 20 minutes of dread and horror as like they're watching planes spiraling down they're watching Mm. the flak exploding you know as they're coming down people are counting the planes coming in to see who lived and who died and it's like even the planes that land there's people who have been shot and killed and and like parts of the plane blown off and it's lucky that they made it to the ground (laughs) And it's like on one every mission, you're going to be wondering who's coming back or not. So go fly, go fly for the Air Force. Mm, uh, yeah, you can see the. There's also the. You, you get the sense of each director's style coming through, even though yes. the images themselves may not be that well composed as, as you would get if you were filming on a back lot or if you were Ford kind of stomping around Monument Valley. You can right. get a sense of his his kind of the, the sweeping scope of his work. Uh, you know talking about houston and the sense of masculinity that comes through in a lot of his his work there's a lot of sense of the the camaraderie and things like that and and in frank capra's uh why we fight films there's a that uh uh, del toro says you know that the thing that was interesting about them as propaganda was they made it folksy and you can really see you can really imagine his the, the dialogue in it and the narration being delivered by jimmy stewart you know it does have that same quality to it Right. And that's what that was the interesting thing was Capra's is is different because he was, I think, the one of them that was kind of staying behind mm-hmm. as opposed to actually going out on the front lines and capturing in the moment footage because he was more about let's organize the cause. Let's mm-hmm. why are we going again? Why we fight? Mm. And and he's kind of more doing presentations. I mean, his, his are almost kind of like very elaborate PowerPoint presentations of here is here here are the reasons why we're going and doing what we're doing and his work is also very interesting because the other ones all feel as if they're part of an established even if it's a very kind of new uh, tradition of of documentary filmmaking the the, mm. the few documentaries that existed at the time uh, when you consider that when the war started you're only 13 years after Nanook of the North mm. uh, and Ka- uh, Capra himself even says that he had never seen a documentary prior to being hired to make documentaries and he thought of them as just something that rich kooks made um (laughs) but but when you watch the why we fight film it does feel like the one that makes the biggest leaps in the form in that it incorporates animation and it's incorporating um you know kind of very expressive use of montage in order to relay a lot of very complicated information Uh, and you can really see in some of the the animations he uses or just even the way in which they illustrate points using maps and arrows and things like that. You can see a lot of the tools that would become essential parts of documentary filmmaking, but even just like TV news, these things that yeah. would become uh, part of the basic language of, of informational um, pre- presentation in a very short period of time. Yeah, and, and that that's what made it interesting was the montage itself was so... I mean, he's very much using like newsreel style format, mm. But he's doing it with such a level of polish and skill. It almost felt like a fever dream at times. Just the yeah. the mixture of kind of like very impressionistic imagery and animation and like, you know, the uh, superimposing the Liberty Bell and just all these really abstract visuals mixed with him actually repurposing the enemy's own propagandist footage. Hmm. To, you know, where they are showing the grandeur and the spectacle of their armies. And he's like, look how silly these idiots look. <laughs> yeah, it, it really doesn't take much to go from, like, like you say, showing the grandeur or trying to right. make this pomp and circumstance look important to saying, these are all a bunch of weirdos. Look at the way they're behaving. Right, but, um, but also then going further to say, I know they look weird, but they're also very serious and they're also mm, very dangerous. And yeah. It's like while we're while we're being distracted by all these really goofy guys, here are the real people, and it's it's a very, it, I mean, it reminds me a lot of like those uh, like here's what happened to Kennedy type documentaries, and oh and, yeah, and it, it's very constructed. I I find it very compelling, even if I don't agree with all the things that it's promoting, but it is just such a bombardment of not only abstract imagery but this very very calm very very uh thorough narrator just relating all of this information to us and there are also points where they don't have any narration at all it will just be an assault of images of different like a keanu quasi type yeah yeah exactly yeah whether they're just showing you 
the, the troops kind of information of the different of the different axis powers and and things that are going on and it's really it, yeah it is it like you say it's, it's, it's borders on abstract yeah exactly and it does As a, and i only watched the first one prelude to war it definitely makes me want to sit down and watch the others but i think they're ones i'm gonna need like a break in between because there's such a bombardment of stuff yeah, and, and also I think some of the later ones, particularly, and this is is talked about fairly extensively in the documentary mm-hmm. when they start talking about Japan, and it you really get a sense, you really get a sense of how even the moderating forces in the in the War Department who were saying, you know, hey, we need to make these people look bad, but we don't want to make them look too bad because we've also got hundreds of thousands of of Japanese Americans that we're going to put in camps and then disperse around the country. Um, which is obviously horrible in its own way, but you know that even the moderating forces still end up with these really horribly racist caricatures, right. um, and and talk about them being vermin and rats. Uh, and I think the film does a good job of drawing a line between that sort of language right. and the brutality with which the battle in the Pacific was was carried through. And that's where I'm going to be curious to to watch what were his his entries on the war in China because it's you know asian people attacking asian people how are you differentiating the portrayal of each that'll that's something i'm actually really curious to learn not mm. knowing what he did with with how he portrayed the japanese in in that last one yeah they i think in some of the cartoons and stuff that that um from that era particularly the the kind of the the snafu stuff or the warner brothers mm-hmm. stuff that was being produced at the time just in the kind of main works that were being put out there uh the chinese don't really factor into it very much it's mainly focusing entirely on the japanese uh who you know they portray in the just the most horrifying way possible right uh beyond the kind of the bounds of usual propaganda exactly uh which is you know i think that the film the 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 documentary does a really good job of emphasizing that saying uh, and pointing out the complexity of it in the uh, they were trying to make people say hey these are people that you need to fight but also it very quickly when it wasn't talking about different groups of white people <laughs> as it was in right yeah Germany. the germans were still always portrayed as largely aryan mm. almost yeah. almost to a degree that the german armies wished that they were <laughs> which is oddly <laughs> yeah. ironic yeah when it when it comes to the to the japanese it's very very harsh and, and uh problematic in in yeah. major ways and another thing that's that's interesting about the, the 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 a point that's kind of brought up during the the film itself that this period was very crucial in a lot of ways. Obviously, the the World War Two changed a lot of things. It was one of the, the kind of the seismic events of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. But in terms of documentary as a form, it's when you get the creation of the best documentary Oscar because suddenly all of these kind of Hollywood favorites are off making documentaries, and it does feel as if this was a something of a, a a breakthrough moment for the form because suddenly a lot of them were being made and a lot of them were establishing the essential visual grammar of what a documentary is. Yeah, and it's like you've mentioned Nook of the North and then of course there was a lot of the early work of Marion C. Cooper who was one mm. of those, let's actually go out to foreign lands and foreign locations. But even then his stories were still very constructed and often he would use that footage and build a fictional film around them. You know, and yeah. yeah, this is this is the first where you're really starting to see. Let's just be in the moment of a moment, and mm. capture it and present it. And that's something that really comes through in the the final part of the the, the third part of the series when it focuses primarily on George Stevens because right. he was the last of the five to really be in the theater of conflict. Because well, he was just else... travel. He, he, I think they they said he crossed the entire span of the conflict mm. and just filmed everything. Yeah, including just home movies of himself that he then sent back to his family, mm-hmm. which is, you know, he, he really does have, you do get the sense that he was, even though he, his background wasn't in documentary filmmaking, because no one had a background in documentary filmmaking, right. more or less, uh, he was, that they describe him as being just a pure documentarian who would just go around and film everything that happened, uh, and then uh, that is is one of the reasons why the, the footage from Dachau is so powerful, because you do get a sense that they're not uh, trying to exploit your your emotions about it they're not shaping things it, yeah they're just saying okay we're going to take a camera and we're just going to show this stuff to the world we're going to present evidence which is is obviously what it ended up being at the nuremberg trials mm-hmm. yeah and it would be interesting too i i almost want to see like an expansion or a follow-up to, to, to this kind of exploring how 
a lot of these techniques then as Europe had to rebuild itself led to a lot of the neorealism movement in the, in the forties and fifties. Um, you know, the, let's just get a, a cheap handheld camera. Let's film with people who aren't actors, just simple stories about what it's like living in post-war society. Let's actually use the rubble buildings as our locations, you, you know, like um, Victoria de Sita, his movies mm. and all that type of stuff. It's interesting how you're kind of seeing a sowing of the seeds for that, as well as I would be curious to explore like the contrast between this and kind of infamously how Vietnam was filmed. Like mm. everything in Vietnam was filmed but almost all of it was just raw and you didn't have this group of people who were there to kind of compress it and, and make sense of it all. Yeah. Until decades later when people uh, would until take after that. the fact. Yeah. I think there's also an interesting contrast to be drawn between on the one hand, you know, you do have this growth of, of a documentary form and people discovering that you can, you don't need sets, you know, you mm -hmm. can just go out into the world and make a movie yeah, and that kind of blossoming throughout Europe for, for the next kind of 20 years or so. But also if you look at something like, like Thunderbolt with the, um, with the mounted cameras and stuff, the mm -hmm. footage from that just looks like something from Top Gun. That's spectacular. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or the way in which the war movies that were made after the war, which used a lot of that footage as its basis, you can see that then, inspiring star wars and the space battles in there which are d defined by a lot of that imagery as well or even just that mounting how it like i think it probably took like another 10 20 years before someone was like hey can we mount those on a car during a chase scene mm. yeah yeah you really do get a sense that there's two wildly different directions that cinema goes from this point between yeah. the fantastical and, and even uh, i guess in, in ben-hur and william wilder with the chariot uh, the chariot yeah, yeah, chase yeah, yeah. That has a lot of that as well. You can really see he's he's finding the best places to put the camera to capture every moment of the action in that scene. But yeah, the cinema goes in two wildly different directions as a result of the same the same um, basic core of, of movies during the the war, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is kind of interesting. And and it's, and it's again, I find it interesting that so much of this is about documenting what happened to Europe, and Europe is the one who then goes and rebuilds their film industry on doing a lot of the the experiment the new wave filmmakers let's do it cheap mm. let's do it grungy let's do it experimental let's put it together in editing at just everything we film and hollywood kind of takes a while to catch on to that until like the late 60s and then throughout the 70s whereas mm. they kind of settle back into the polished studio product yeah which also is is interesting just in terms of editing a lot of those documentaries because they are taking footage that has been shot in a lot of different places and and it's kind of they, they have a lot of stuff to go through they're very um the editing for it feels very modern you know like like the the why we fight stuff where it's all abstract or or just kind of the battle of midway where it's lots of very fast cutting between different things happening uh, mm -hmm. which was something that took a really long time to take root in hollywood filmmaking because immediately after the war you get film noir which is pacey but it's not you know that the length of the shots is still fairly leisurely in in much the way that a lot of classic hollywood filmmaking was mm -hmm. yeah and this this definitely wants makes you want to go back and revisit certain things and you know and like even kurosawa you know while he took the painterly vistas of ford started to do the quick cuts started to do the let's just film things from distant cameras and i'll put it together in editing you mm -hmm. know and it is interesting how this is very much the start of a whole different style of filmmaking. And again, I, you know, Paul Greengrass, a great example of how that's kind of resurfaced in, in a new way for the new era, you know, with like his, his um, United 93, where it's, again, let's just film things from as many angles as we can. Let's just let the actors go and do what they do and put it together after the fact. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's kind of, I think, the furthest extreme of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think also um, something that's, that I find interesting about the, the way in which Five Came Back has been pushed uh, by Netflix, because Netflix put mm. out a lot of stuff. They put out a lot of documentaries and a lot of that stuff, you know, they don't put as much effort behind either because it's just something they've acquired somewhere and they just want to put out content and just see if it, it lands. It's cheaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this feels like they they put a lot of effort to it and, and the fact that they have put a lot of the documentaries themselves on netflix which again and you know it's, it's cheap to do because they're all stuff that's been declassified and is in the public domain so oh, yeah, it you can cost... watch them all on youtube <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't cost them anything to put them on there but it does right. feel as if they are really pushing 
the 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 film and and particularly they are aiming it at kind of a, a cinephile or a history buff audience and i think it feels to me like something that netflix have been just trying to do in general they are because they've had success with their documentaries at the oscars and things like that uh, either getting lots of nominations or, or winning this year for one of their shorts uh, it does feel like it uh, like it's part of a broader push to try and be taken more seriously and and right. this you know you can't get more serious uh and certainly you can't get something more academy friendly than a documentary about world war ii that specifically is viewed through the lens literally and figuratively of uh kind of great beloved hollywood film uh, figures right and that's been one of the interesting things to watch about the rise of netflix is that where they've become popular is not in major blockbuster movies because they have mm. just such an a weird eclectic collection of them and they have a whole lot of shitty movies um yeah but they've become an interesting home not only for television but yeah documentaries indie films foreign films uh, especially all all modern recent releases i think film stuck and now that they've broken off of hulu is kind of the home for the classics of that mm. style whereas you know this is still more but if you want to see what the best documentary films are at the oscars every year you go watch them on netflix now yeah the, there is also a sense that um they are maybe trying to carve out a niche for themselves that up until now that you can't say specifically what a netflix kind of movie would be mm -hmm. whereas with amazon you kind of have a sense they have the, the the kind of projects they've been picking up they are establishing something of a a house not a house right. style but certainly a house feeling of you know these movies are by established filmmakers who maybe don't have the most success in the studio system like kenneth lonergan who basically had never had a successful film until mm -hmm. he did manchester by the sea uh, or he'd not directed a successful film he'd written um uh, uh uh that one with robert de niro and billy crystal right yeah, and then um, is it, isn't isn't scorsese's next film going to be netflix too and yeah uh yes yeah that so that they certainly seem to be between them amazon and netflix are certainly seem to be in competition to try and get yeah. the most kind of high profile movies they can on their slate to try and really yeah. break through. Uh, and until now, Netflix, because they just buy up a lot of stuff and push it all out there, there's no real sense of what a Netflix show or movie is other than that they are on Netflix. Yes. And Adam Sandler movies. Yes, as well. Yeah. So, Which I would like, like to think that the Adam Sandler movies are like their version of Cars. Mm -hmm. where Pixar uses the car movies to pay for the movies they really want to make. Yeah. Netflix is using the Adam Sandler movies to to get subscribers to pay for the movies that they really want to make. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be, considering the apparently they are wildly popular. <laughs> yeah, apparently they do really well, especially in Europe for some reason. Yeah, is he the modern Jerry Lewis? <laughs> That's Which a is weird, because I know anyone. the truth behind the Jerry Lewis thing. It was actually because of his innovations as a filmmaker that they appreciated mm. But yeah, no, that is that is weird. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very strange situation they've got into. But like like you say, if they do get the subscribers and that is what they want, they want as many people to subscribe as want as they right. want to pay for something like Five Came Back, which uh, could be perceived otherwise as too niche or focused right. and made. It's 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 uh, and ulti ultimately it's a good, <laughs> even if uh, and also it's good because it means that there are adam sandler films out in the world that i don't have to see adverts for because yes, they'll never play yes. in a they'll never play in a theater oh man imagine if netflix started putting trailers for other things on netflix before anything that you watch on netflix oh, god that'd be that'd be the worst that would be annoying <laughs> if, yeah yeah if they, or if they just started uh having ads in there like hulu but it's all for their content like you try to go watch a a french documentary about human trafficking and it's an ad for the next kevin james movie <laughs> or watching uh, yeah. five came back and you get the ad for iron fist <laughs> or they just try and really push that richie rich adaptation they purchased right. a few years ago that's still on there which but, uh, i don't think they want anyone to talk about <laughs> yeah but but i mean i think that is interesting how streaming has expanded the markets for niche material mm, absolutely yeah. I mean, you, you know, they they all still the problem with the blockbusters is the blockbusters either want to stay on a format where you have to pay the most in order to access it for as many years as they can. Mm. Or they just like every three years, they bounce the contract around from streaming service to streaming service. Like I know a bunch of stuff that was on Netflix just suddenly went to Hulu. And in a couple of years, that'll probably go to Amazon. And then it's kind of that weird dance 
where you'd think you'd want to try to get it on as many platforms as you can at once, but there's a lot of the exclusivity issues that are start, starting to come up. Mm-hmm. But I like how it's become a home for, yeah, Netflix you go to for indie drama or for, for indie dramas, for foreign films, for for documentaries. Hulu has become a fascinating resource for foreign television. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that you can not only watch Homeland there, but you can watch the original is Israeli version of Homeland as well as the Russian version of Homeland <laughs> and all of Irwin Allen's catalog. And then Amazon has kind of become the the interesting pay-per-view area mm. where, where they are kind of the place you go if you want to rent a film by the film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I think is why or, they have more of the modern blockbusters because you have to pay for each each viewing. And even just in terms of their um, original work, you know, the, the, they have the feel of a boutique label or of a smaller distributor like an mm-hmm. A24 or an Annapurna Pictures where you they they like i say they they have a a house almost a house tone or a house feel where you think okay yeah i know what what a netflix movie is uh, what an amazon movie is rather right and even how like you know crunchyroll is made like single-handedly saved the anime industry Mm, you know or how comic books going digital has expanded like finally brought in like women and people of color who were alienated by the mainstream for decades Mm. you know how digital as a whole is creating an expansion beyond the mainstream of or at least what the mainstream ideal was for a long time Mm. not to a point where it's like hugely successful but to a point where it generates enough that it's at least sustainable yeah yeah it's a very interesting time in which we live (laughs) in terms of there's just something for everyone you know and it doesn't necessarily have to have the biggest audience and There's the stuff a ridiculous that, amount of stuff available these days yeah it's it's almost impossible to keep up with everything but certainly five came back is is one of the things yeah. i think people should be uh keeping up with it's a, a fantastic story that's uh, uh expertly told and, and as you said i think appealing to to cinephiles too yeah let's get some of the modern legends of directing talking about some of their favorite past legends of directing i mean I remember mm. as you tweeted, just hearing Guillermo del Toro talk about Capra is something we could listen to all day. Yeah, if they want to release just the raw interviews from it, <laughs> <laughs> I would happily sit and watch those. There's probably like five or six hours of each. Uh, and you know, also Spielberg as well is, is just someone who's such... His love of cinema is so pure. <laughs> that, right, you know, and it, it's interesting because Spielberg is one of the ones that you kind of hear from the least sometimes because of his shunning of audio commentaries. Mm. I still never entirely got... But yeah, hearing him talking about Weiler, like I've never really even thought of Weiler. Like even I've seen several of his movies, but I never really connected them as being by the same person. Mm-hmm. And he's not a director I've really ever thought much about. And it, this really made him a fascinating person for me, and I want to go explore more. Yeah, yeah, and certainly the like when they just when when he is talking about the the loss of his hearing, making him mm. more painterly, and then they instantly show a few clips from from Ben Hur, and you're like. Yeah. Oh yeah, that that is exactly what you're talking about. That is an immensely beautifully assembled movie. That is absolutely uh, a movie made by someone who can't hear Charlton Heston's delivery. <laughs> I'm yeah. the son of Egypt. <laughs> That's but actually I mean, yeah, slightly but, better. <laughs> but even even like George Stevens is, you mm. know, like Giant is a movie I've hated because my dad made me watch it when I was nine okay yeah <laughs> and i just i just always found it ponderous and overblown mm-hmm. but i've also seen it on the big screen too which was beautiful but this makes me want to not only explore you know some more of his later movies like i mean of course we've all grown up with diary of Anne frank we watch it in high school over here in america mm-hmm. so we all know that but i've never seen shane and i would love to see some of his early pre-war films as a contrast to see that development of him as a as as a creator yeah, there is a, a huge contrast if you look at something like Woman of the Year and then go to A Place in the Sun or, or Shane, which are mm-hmm. both very, very uh, deeply kind of sad and melancholy movies. And and Shane as well is just a, a fascinating movie to watch in light of what he saw, because it is a movie about a man who has committed acts of violence, who has seen acts of violence, right. trying to find some form of grace, uh, uh, which ends up being through acts of violence. Yes. Um uh, but in order to try and build a better world and, and the knowledge that maybe it's not a world for which, which uh, he will have a place, which also is something that crops up in a lot of John Ford's post right. post film work. So I think this documentary does an amazing job 
of recontextualizing films that are already really iconic and making you think uh, obviously it's not the only lens through which you can you view you can view them and and maybe it would be Ford himself would probably be furious at the idea of people trying to find um, personal stamp in his work from that period. But um, it certainly adds an extra level of depth to them, knowing about the experiences that the five men went through. Right. And and then that's always something fascinating with me about exploring filmmakers is I do like to do these big binges of not only watching everyone's work, watching someone's entire body of work, but watching it in order, because then you mm. get the broader story of themselves as a filmmaker. And like, I've done that in the past with Kurosawa. I've done that with Robert Aldrich. I'm currently doing a podcast about it on John Carpenter at mastersofcarpenter.blogspot.com. <laughs> and like John Ford, I have a whole bunch of his stuff that I've assembled for the plans of that project. Between this and that podcast, I guessed it on about Quiet Man last month. I really need to get going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there's a... I mean, there's a lot of it to kind of dig into. <laughs> I mean, and like Robert Aldridge was someone who like kind of eschewed people recognizing him as having like a singular auteur voice. And yet he had mm-hmm. an incredibly powerful singular auteur voice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's what I would really be curious to explore with Ford. Mm, yeah, and, and he is, you know, as one of the great um, creators of Americans uh, myth of itself and its conception of itself and its past. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's i think that there would be something incredible to to watching the change between something like stagecoach which is not not an overly simplistic movie but it's certainly a very exciting and adventurous movie and then something like uh, the man who shot liberty valance which is a, a movie about the idea of how legends get born and how they mm-hmm. they are shaped by the people who end up telling the stories mm-hmm. and then there's chesty the legend about a legendary person named chesty yeah <laughs> The most legendary of his movies. Yes, Um, absolutely. We end the show, as we always do, with SRS Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed recently, or something that links to the the theme. Uh, Noel, what have you got to recommend for us? Ah, God, I've been kind of struggling to think of something interesting in terms of like the whole documentary of documentarians making their documentaries. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I'm just I'm struggling. I, I I almost want to just recommend go watch some of Laurent Bozeru's early filmmaking, like his his jaws documentary is longer than jaws <laughs> is that is that the one that's uh on like the 40th anniversary uh dvd because i think i've right. seen that one and it is that one is that one's been our that one has been on the dvd sets since the late 90s it's it's one oh. of his first big ones and i will also say his documentary for jaws 2 is also fascinating as everyone is just trying to figure out how do we do a sequel to jaws <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah no, uh, that, that was just fascinating so i okay. think that's all i got Okay, great. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Robert Aldrich because I'm actually going to recommend one of his movies um, mm. because uh, I've been watching Feud, uh, the uh, story about the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which has been a very fun and entertaining show. I want to uh, watch it, it made... so bad, I can't. <laughs> it's it's got a lot. It's got a lot of interesting things going on. Although I have to say that Alfred Molina's accent as Robert Aldrich is less than consistent. <laughs> Uh, I've always found his accent to be less inconsistent, but I don't care because it's Alfred Molina. Yeah, he's obviously <laughs> just a, a great presence. Um, but but I rewatched Whatever Happened to Baby Jane uh, in light of the movie and uh, in light of the series, uh, and uh, I rediscovered what a what a great and and fascinating movie it is. Um, and in particular, it was interesting because there's been lots of articles about it in light of feud and people describing it as like a camp classic and things like that, which is a a label that I think the film itself doesn't necessarily shoulder there's obviously a lot of or doesn't kind of um bear out because i mean there's a lot of of kind of big moments because it's a kind right. of a, a, a crazy horror movie but it's also one of the saddest movies i think i've ever seen in a lot yeah. of ways just you know the 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 whole uh end of the movie where where betty davis says you know after all this you mean all this time we could have been friends it's just the most kind of plaintive and mm-hmm line and it just does such a wonderful job of encapsulating in a handful of words the whole sense of a life just completely wasted um and i think that it's a movie that has a reputation for for being camp but is it has a lot more going on beyond that which is that it's just a a deeply kind of sad look at at the lives of people who have destroyed themselves uh, through their hatred of each other uh, and the the sense that really none of this was necessary (laughs) they could have been they could have been friends this whole time and and they ended up destroying each other which is uh you know just makes for a really wonderful wonderful movie that i think more people should seek out and hopefully people will seek out because the the series is getting a lot of attention 
Well, if I can sneak in just a couple of extra bonus recommends for you building off of that. Okay. Uh, Such a Gorgeous Kid Like Me, which is another novel by Henry Farrell, who wrote Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Hush, Sweet Charlotte. It's oh, yeah. a, th- this, it's told in a, the novel is, is told in a very assembling of documents and interviewing people and backstories, tracing this history of this woman who just finds herself at the center of all of these affairs and murders and crimes, most of which people don't realize that she's actually been instigating. Oh, wow. And it's very much kind of in a, it's a novel in a very documentary style fashion of gradually assembling the pieces that reveal who this person is. And it was made into a film by, by Francois Truffaut. Oh, I have seen the I have seen the film. I haven't read the book, but yeah, I remember. I don't know uh, how faithful it is because I I haven't seen the film yet. I don't remember it having that documentary aesthetic to okay. it, which probably that, would have been really interesting. Yeah, and then also Robert Dollich's film, speaking of World War II, Attack. Oh, okay. Um, where it's um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name the the actor who from City Slickers. Oh, um, Jack Palance. Jack Palance. It's Jack Palance versus Eddie Albert. A whole argument about cowardice in an army bunker while the war is going on around them. Jack Palance blows up a tank with a bazooka. It's amazing. <laughs> it, it's it's a very minimalist movie, very rough, mm. very raw, very fitting with a lot of the stuff that we're seeing. And, and so very Robert Aldrich, and I highly recommend it. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll look out for those. Thank you, uh, Noel, for coming on the show. Uh, no where can people find your work? Uh, if you just go to nolct.blogspot.com, that kind of links to all the broader stuff. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for everyone for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please uh, rate us and review us on iTunes and subscribe, obviously, but you can also do that on Stitcher Smart Radio, Player FM, wherever you can get podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. Bye.